There's a small area of Paris that's one of my favourites. It's got an odd name, the Casvin. In English, that's the 1520s. It comes from the old French system of counting, which to Anglophone ears can be eccentric. So instead of saying 80, they say 420s, and for 90, 420s 10. Casvin is an old-fashioned way of saying 300, and the district is called that because it was home to a famous eye hospital that had, yes, 300 beds. Today, the Casvin is the kind of neighbourhood a film director would conjure up for his or her quintessential Paris backdrop. It has attic apartments, inventive bistros, and a noisy market selling cheese, saucisson, fresh fish on slabs, fruit from across France. Sunshine yellow peaches, berries in shimmery red, sit alongside pearly mushrooms and shiny purple aubergines. It's a place that indulges our senses of smell and taste, and just the joy of looking. If you wander a hundred yards or so towards the main road, you'll see a shop under a railway arch, that mirrors all those colours and textures. But this time we're looking at fabric, lots of it. The windows are full of some of the most extraordinary cloth I have seen. And inside there's more, lots more. Glimmering peacock jacquards, tangerine twills with purple tufts, iridescent green and black hopsack, multicoloured ribbon tweeds, slubby black and white weaves, and gauzes in ice cream colours. If you're a sewer, it makes your fingers itch as you think about what you could make. Around the wall are interesting yarns, elasticated paper, slippery rayon bound with angora, beaded twine, plastic-coloured threads, thick silk ropes mixed with tiny feathers, fibres in every weight and colour. And yes, if you're a weaver or a knitter, it makes your fingers itch as you think what you could make. This feast of colour and texture is called Malia Kent. Everything in the shop is for sale at knockdown prices. It's the remaindered fabric and yarns that were designed and created for French couture. These are the weaves and colours of past seasons in an industry where what is in and what is out moves fast. I put all the money I had on, on buying yarns. We have more than 900 tons of yarns, of fancy yarns. We have the biggest collection in the world of fancy yarns. That's Eve Corrigan, who's the president and head designer of Malia Kent. She's the owner of the world's largest yarn stash and one of the top suppliers of woven fabrics to the fashion industry. The firm is successful, but she runs something that's much more than a purely commercial enterprise. It's a labour of love in a company that Eve bought for just one euro, and which turns out thousands of new fabric designs every year. Welcome to Haptic & Hughes' first series of podcasts, 
which looks at textiles of all kinds down the centuries and thinks about the role they play in our lives. I'm Jo Andrews and I'm a hand weaver and a broadcaster. Haptic means the feel of something and hue describes the pure spectrum of colours. This episode continues the exploration of the hidden hands behind the French fashion industry. And this time it looks at how it has fostered some of the world's most inventive woven fabric design. It also thinks about the way this has evolved and how it has survived and developed in the face of modern tastes and pressures. To make it, I went to Paris in March and visited workshops and ateliers, talked to designers and weavers and specialist shop owners. I didn't know it at the time, but it was a privilege to be able to do this face to face. This story begins with Coco Chanel in 1961. At this stage, Chanel was in the last flourish of her long career. She'd come out of exile in Switzerland some years before, after narrowly avoiding prosecution for collaboration in the Second World War. And against the odds, she'd reopened her business in Paris. Unexpectedly, it had been a success, and her well-tailored casual clothing had been heralded as a new blend of fashion and youthfulness after the cinched waists, heavy skirts and stiff jackets of Dior's new look. Enter an unlikely figure of a young law student called Michel Serrano, who had bought a small hand loom and taken up weaving as a hobby, a hobby that was beginning to take over her life. Eve takes up the story. She went to Chanel and she said, I want to see Mademoiselle Chanel. Of course, they said, oh, you're very nice, but uh, what, what for? I said, uh, she said, I have, I have some fabrics that I want to show her. I said, no, leave the fabrics and we'll call you back. She had a very hot personality and uh, very strong. And she said, no, 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 no. I'm not going to leave everything. I want to see Mrs. Chanel, please. And so loud that Coco Chanel heard and came down the stairs, you know, the big one, and said, who is this girl screaming? And she went, oh, I'm sorry, she wants to, to show you fabrics. Uh, let, let, her, let her come. And then she hired her. In fact, Madame Chanel gave Michel Serrano an impossible task. She placed an order with the young woman for a significant amount of fabric for the next day. Amazingly, Michel Serrano managed to fulfil it. And as a result, she and Coco Chanel established a working partnership with the House of Chanel that lasted for decades. When we think of Chanel's trademark in the 1960s and 70s, what we are thinking of is very largely Michel Serrano's work. She was responsible for the fantasy tweeds in strong colours and striking combinations that look fresh and modern, season after season. There was an understanding of colour and weave design in dress fabrics that became Chanel's global hallmark. In 1967, Michel Serrano set up Malia Kent as an independent design house 
and began supplying not just Chanel, but also Yves Saint Laurent, Christian Lacroix, Armani, Lanvin, and all the big names of European fashion. But she didn't have long to enjoy her success. After five years, she, she got sick and she didn't want to, to have a treatment. So uh, she knew that she had to find somebody to take care of, because this was her baby. She had no children. It was her baby. Lots of people wanted to buy the company, but Michel Serrano didn't like them. They thought of Malia Kent as purely a commercial proposition, and she wanted something different. At this stage, Eve Corrigan was a young mother, a successful former model. She had some experience with the Pret-a-Porter industry, designing and supplying garments to Paris dress shops. And just as she was preparing a large lunch, she got a call from her lawyer. My, my lawyer called me and he said, you have, to, you have to come now. I said, I'm sorry, but I have 14 people having lunch today. It's 12 o'clock, they're coming. The lawyer told me, it's not a, a question, it's an order. Your life is in front of me. She deserted her guests and her lunch table and did as the lawyer told her. At the office, she met Michel Serrano. And she looked at me and she, she, she spoke a few things and she told me, uh, do you know how to weave? Wow, the question was hard. I said, I must say, I'm sorry, but not at all. I have no idea what is a loom and yarns and I know fabrics because I did, I did some garments, but I don't know nothing about weaving. She said, okay, you're the one. I said, can I ask you why? <laughs> it's because you're going to have your creativity before the technique. Because all the other ones, they're stopped by the technique, so they're not creative. And you will do the opposite. She offered Eve an unbelievable deal. Eve was to buy the company for one euro, and Michel Serrano would design the first collection in return for 5% of the profits, so that Eve could learn the ropes. Eve set about modernising the technical side of the business and moving everything from paper records onto computers and left Michel Serrano to the creative side. There was, though, just one catch. Eve didn't know that Michel Serrano was sick. After three months, they called me from the hospital and say, now we have to tell you she's at the end. So I'm sorry, but she will not make the collection. The showing of the new season's fabric, called the Premier Vision, was not far away. I said, I, I, I have nothing to lose because anyway, I'm going to close tomorrow. Or oh, the, the, the first week of, uh, the first day of Premier Vision, I will close. Eve may not have understood the technical process of weaving, but what she did have was a real feel for colour. And importantly, an instinctive sense for what she wanted to see in a fabric. Instead of starting with plain yarn, she started with the most outlandish and complex yarns she could find. And she prepared to celebrate her failure with a table at Le Maison Caviar. I called my mother and said, you know, Tuesday night, uh, book a table, I'll get drunk with vodka. 
I don't drink at all huh? because I'm going to be so ashamed of showing what I'm showing because it's so eccentric that everybody's going to laugh at me. So I will close the place and not finish the, the Première Vision Salon and uh, stop. I, I paid one euro, I, I learned things and it's okay, it's too bad, okay. But it didn't turn out like that. In fact, her stand wasn't big enough. It was such a success that people were fighting because the stand was not so big. They, they would bring tables to put in the, in the corridors. Uh, Valentino didn't want to see Armani, so we have to put some fabrics between two because they didn't want to, to know what, which one was taking what. The problem is that I was not organized to have so many orders. But uh, that's, so I went to the Maison du Caviar with my mother, but I had water. <laughs> when I went to the design studio in March, in one of those perfect 19th century French villas on the outskirts of Paris, it was humming. For more than 20 years, Malia Kent, under Yves' direction, has been at the forefront of the French fashion industry, supplying fabric to both haute couture and pret-a-porter. Malia Kent still has a close relationship with Chanel and a special secret desk in the design studio where they work specifically on fabric just for that house. But amazingly, every year, Malia Kent comes up with over 4,000 new designs. And this is part of the secret of their success. They work closely with clients to vary fabrics by colour or structure. And they're prepared to do runs of any size from 15 metres to thousands of metres. And if you think this is a story of mechanisation and giant machines in a modern world, that's not the case. At the heart of this successful enterprise is still the humble handloom and the craft of hand weaving. The design studio at Malia Kent is a big light room with a bank of table looms. They're New Zealand Ashford looms, the kind that many beginners start their weaving journeys on. These are versatile 12 and 16 shaft looms, but the weavers are warping them and weaving on them by hand to produce thousands of samples that the company considers for its collections every year. I'm testing with new yarns, so I'm just trying to see how the yarns go together, if it works out. So I'm doing different tests and it can take a while until I find the pattern, the drawing and the yarn combination that I like. Alice is one of the weave designers. It's her first job after completing her training at the Brussels School of Fine Art. I'm using different structures. We play with plain weaves, twill, every the basic, basic structures, but we also try new ones. So I'm drawing new ones. And, but sometimes when you draw something, you think it's going to work out and you have to try it again until it really works. Every single sample passes under Eve's eye. She knows what she wants and how the collection should look. And to make sure it's right, she also designs and has her yarns coloured to her precise specifications. As she says, this pink is not that pink, and this green is not that green. 
It gives the fabric a look and a feel which is unlike anything else I've seen and it makes the fabrics very hard to copy. Once she's happy, the order passes to the big mechanised mill in the French city of Lyon, where they run off thousands of metres, if that is what is needed, and then it's checked carefully and distributed. Last time on this podcast, we heard that a number of French couture houses now outsource some of their fine embroidery work to artisans in India and North Africa. The same is true in the fabric industry where much of the production is now done in China, except at Malia Kent, where Eve made an early decision to keep everything in France. But I love my country, and the savoir-faire is French or English or European anyway. I cannot take something that belongs to France and make money on it in another country. That's against my... uh, my ethic. It was an early battle for Eve. When she took over Malia Kent in the 1990s, she was unusual in being a woman at the head of a French fabric design company. Not long after she took over, the fabric producers of France called a meeting to discuss the threat from China's fabric factories, which were just gaining access to European markets. She was the only woman there out of more than 250 producers. And they all said, what are you going to do? Uh, all of them said, mainly, uh, I'm going to fire one stylist out of two. I'm going to buy, uh, not to buy any more yarns, I will use the one I have. And I will take some old um, fabrics from my old collections. Like this, the price will be better. I said, I'm sorry, but I'm new in the in the, in the job, but uh, we'll never go up to this price. There's no way. Um, have the same position to make uh, to be as cheap as possible. I said, this is lost. We'll never make fabrics for four dollars. It's no no way. We have too much uh, incomes and charge and uh, salaries. So rather than trying to compete directly with the Chinese manufacturers on price and quality, she decided on a different strategy. For me, the only way is to do something exceptional that people will, will want if, because they won't find it anywhere else. But it was difficult because there was 269 men have the same position, to be as cheap as possible. So I told them, no, I'm going to hire three stylists on top of the two I have already, and I'm going to make some very fancy things. And that they said, okay, that's enough. Thank you very much. So it was very difficult for me to, to find this strategy that was completely against the idea of the other ones. But I did it, because anyway... I like beautiful things, and I cannot make bad things, only to make money. And it's this strategy that has, until now, paid off. Malia Kent has prioritised quality, variety and original fabric design over price. All the yarns are created in France, Italy or Britain, and the design and manufacturing is all French. 
the speed at which the company creates new textiles and their responsiveness to individual fashion houses means that it's hard to copy what they do. It's also had a surprising outcome. Malia Ken now sells its fabric to Chinese fashion houses. Even to China, I will put on my grave, she sold fabric in China. <laughs> I was in Paris before COVID hit the city hard this spring. Things will have been difficult for everyone in the textile industry there, from the youngest designer to the oldest manufacturer. But before that happened, Eve believed that Malia Kent had a bright future before it, and she welcomed the prospect of an age where less is more. Maybe it's better to, to sell less, but better. The people don't want to buy a lot of things. They want to, to buy one beautiful thing instead of five pieces of, of China. We want quality. We want ethic. We want uh, the planet to be green. This episode of Haptic and Hue was written, narrated and edited by me, Joe Andrews. Many thanks to Eve Corrigan of Malia Kent for sharing her passion for colour and good design with us. You can see pictures of some of Eve's legendary yarn stash and some of her fabrics at www.hapticandhue.com forward slash listen. You can also find show notes there, and I provide a complete transcript of this podcast, as well as a list of resources and background reading that you might enjoy. You can sign up to get these podcasts directly into your inbox, and to have a chance to win the textile-related gifts that I give away with each episode. You'll also find blogs and other information about textiles and haptic and hue there. Next time, we look at something completely different. The vast majority of people who listen to this podcast and who use textiles are women. In Western and Northern societies, not many men work with soft materials like fabrics, yarn and thread. They're much more likely to be found working with hard materials like wood or metal. Join me next time to find out why and to talk to some of the men who've bridged this divide and are happy knitters, weavers and stitchers. And thanks for listening.
and, um, and also uh, 